hello and welcome. My name is Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Ryan again. No, Hi. that doesn't sound right, but anyway. Hi. <laughs> now, tell me what we're talking about today. We finished off the last conversation, which was about a lot of things, a bit of a meandering conversation, but it was specifically, I think, about the, the classism inherent in the idea of body image and how that's changed over time. But we mentioned a couple of other things. And one of the things that we talked about that you said you were really interested in was the ethical implications of forcing dietary requirements on kids, because I mentioned towards the end, or perhaps when we finished, I actually don't remember. I said, it's great because we didn't even go down the rabbit hole of saying that a lot of the large Western governments, the only thing they do to stop childhood obesity is do educational programs, healthy eating or something with a large animated giraffe, things like that. That's the only thing they do because it's ethically very iffy <laughs> for the government to come in and tell kids how to live, even if that way of living is better for them. That is only in the parents' domain. Only the parents are allowed to do that. The government is not allowed to do anything other than say, you probably should eat healthy children. Don't eat sweets. And that's it. That's the end of their ethical territory. <laughs> it's interesting because that also goes with adults as well, doesn't it? We can do all the educating that we like, but like with cigarettes, with smoking and with healthy eating and with exercise and all those things where we can't really make it compulsory, can we? We just It's just educational stuff, is it? Let's talk about the morality it's... of that because it becomes a whole kit and caboodle with that. Okay, if somebody chooses to do things that they know are unhealthy, such as smoke, for example, or take drugs, but then we have a Medicare system that everybody pays for. <laughs> and I've heard this argument put forward. Why should I pay for your health care when you're the one who chose to do something that you know is unhealthy? Yep. <laughs> I, I have a lot of opinions of that, about that particular one, but it, it's a good point in that a lot of people are, are not raised by their parents to care about a lot of things. They don't care about diet or, or, or exercise or drug use, regardless of what form that may take, whether it's smoking alcohol or intravenous stuff. And you, you have to ask yourself, if the person doesn't care about their health, why should I care about their health? The government should care about their health take notes, any Western government should care about the health of their citizens, but they're not allowed to do anything about it. They're forced to just sit on their hands and watch as a lot of people just do not care about those things. And I think a large part of that is it, what we were talking about in the last episode. If a certain generation is forced to have a specific diet because of the socioeconomic kind of condition, they can only afford a, a really specific diet rather than the vast and varied things that are available to rich people. For instance, the whole salad thing, fresh vegetables are so expensive, when, especially when you compare them to things like frozen vegetables. And that's a huge kind of divide you've got already. And if you've got parents 
who are teaching their kids those things, you're going to come across a bunch of issues anyway. That's not even mentioning drug and alcohol problems, which I think is just part of being a teenager as well, but also like psychologically has a lot to do with their uh, ability to connect socially to their peers. There's a lot of studies done on it. Yeah, um, my mind's working its way through the morality of making children eat healthily and what you can do. And where I've gone with it is mm-hmm. after World War Two, for example, actually, I don't know whether it was before World War Two, but in the UK, all the children got like a, a little bottle of milk at morning tea time every day and then they also got a two-course lunch provided by the school i don't know whether that still happens this was at primary school senior school didn't happen but that was at primary school to make sure all the children got all the vitamins they needed every day and they were good quality meals so that was provided i think i'm pretty sure actually i'm not pretty sure i think it was started by the labor government after world war ii but then it goes on okay if you're doing that then what else could should you be doing and why can you and why can't you do that it's a big problem regardless i have a lot of issues with the with the whole schooling system the whole idea of it uh, is is flawed i think it's the best one we've got at this point yeah totally. but i'll say the top three health concerns in kids the first is a lack of exercise the second is bad diet and the third is drug use, regardless of what that looks like. And the exercise one is mainly because we force children to sit at a desk for hours at a time for most of the week. And I get that on a logistical level, but kids aren't built <laughs> to do that. And it does set up the expectation that's what the rest of their life should look like. So on the one hand, the government, I think that that illustrates that even though the government should care in making things available and universal for everyone, you're going to automatically take away some kind of fundamental part of what it means to to be a kid and do these things for yourself. If you leave a child to its own devices, it's gonna get in all sorts of trouble, but it will definitely exercise and it will definitely eat and it probably won't do drugs. (laughs) And it'll learn. Statistically. And it'll learn. There are problems with that, obviously, but I think that's the ethical part of it is no matter how much you care, I think this is a problem with parenting and I'd be very interested in your opinion, no matter how much you care, there is a limit to what you can achieve on your own by interfering in someone else's life. And that's the whole problem. If, if Even if the government does care, even if they were to implement exercise in schools and more than they normally do and diet in terms of mandatory meals and no drugs, kids will automatically find a way around that firstly. And secondly, it's not going to be tailored to the individual needs of the child. Yeah. And the incident I'm thinking of here is that when Keely was at junior school, for example, before they started class in the morning, they did half an hour of games and things outside. And every child in that school resisted it. Just not because they were being told that they had to exercise at this point and they mm-hmm. didn't want to and they weren't going to do it. And found the same thing with you four. You knew what, that you felt better when you'd been swimming training or hockey or soccer or whatever. Did that, but the sheer fact that 
I suppose you were being told that you had to do it made you not do it. And it was an effort. And then so you come into that mm. thing with human nature, particularly kids, is that they will resist whatever they're being told is good for them. They'll resist it. That's just human nature. And so it takes a lot of effort to actually get most children to do what you know as a parent or a teacher is good for them. It's really difficult. That's people. I don't think that's just children. I'm just going to point that out for every listener. It's human nature. Somebody says, oh, yeah, you need to do this because it's healthy and here's all the statistics to prove it and the scientific research and blah, blah, blah. Not going to. I don't know that, so I'm just going to do what works for me and I found that blah, 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 I'm okay. That's what we do. I was going to say, which brings us to, to that ethical question. If you know something is going to be good for these kids, the, the problem is that you practically, you should enforce that. <laughs> but ethically, you can't. No. The government has no right. It's a slippery slope. At what point do you stop? And, and that's a real kind of problem that you can see the shape of all of these companies that a lot of so any products out in the marketplace, like if you go to the shops and you look at any given product that's marketed to children, it would be so much more unhealthy <laughs> than anything marketed to adults. It's ridiculous. If you look at any branded cereal, anything for kids is loaded with sugar. And yeah, kids can metabolize sugar a little better than adults can. And they need a little bit more high energy stuff. But that's the problem. Mm. If the government ethically can't tell kids what to do and what not to do, why are we the opposite end of that spectrum is allowing everyone to take as much advantage as possible of parents who want to make their lives slightly easier by yeah. giving them. Yeah, and it's not just slightly Um, easier, it's stopping the kids from whinging as well. You want to take the path of least resistance. There's a lot to to deal Mm. with in life. And if you've got to deal with a kid as a parent or with a 100 kids as a teacher who are whinging about having to Mm. go do swimming training, it's exhausting. It's really, truly exhausting. And that's a a good example of what you're talking about there is when we used to go to Club Med when you were all younger and kids club, when they did afternoon tea, if you remember morning tea and afternoon tea was just sugar central. It was really sweet cereals. It was cakes and biscuits and fruits and it was just sugar. There was not a single savoury thing in there. And by the end of the holiday, you were all, I just want some vegetables. <laughs> I have a sandwich. <laughs> you know, after a while, and I get why they do it. The kids are on holiday. They want a treat and everything. But it was interesting to watch that transition for you all where you finally had enough of sugar. But it's hard work. It really is hard work. Yeah. I didn't really have anything. I was just bouncing. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So let's go more into the ethics of this. So I just finished off saying it's really difficult, but let's move on into the ethics because you were talking about the UN, for example, and 
what mm. the government can and can't do. In how did the UN decide, or is it the UN that decide? Is it UNHCR or whatever that decided what you? Can yeah. Do? So there's this document. I'd recommend everyone looks it up who's interested in being around or having been or having children. Called the United Nations Rights of the Child. Oh yeah. Big long document about what every country should respect about children, about an individual child, what their rights and what their rights are and what our obligation to children is. Uh, and according to the UN Rights of the Child, governments, that's ethically why governments can't interfere. It's one of those limitations of freedom that shouldn't be imposed on children. It should be also noted that the rights of the child are uh, a little bit more strenuous than the rights of man, woman, but that's because it takes a village to raise a child. I think it's an interesting question for any parent because sole responsibility for children is laid on the parents, particularly in the last 50 years or so. We've moved away from those kinds of, you used to get whole families piled in together, several generations at once, so you could share a lot of the responsibility of a child rearing. Whereas in the Western world following America, we've gone into that kind of atomic family where you've got a nuclear family, sorry, where you've got the mother and the father and the several kids. But the mother is responsible entirely for the children because the dad's off working full time. But that's, as you were saying, that's exhausting. <laughs> and you can't just hand off children to another caregiver and know that they'll be safe. You have to pay for that, which is, which means that you've turned the rights of the child into something that a capitalistic society or commercial society can take advantage of. So it becomes automatically a little bit more flawed than it should be. As a parent, my question is, do you think things would be better if the government forced parents to do more things? Like what? To In, in terms of what the children eat and exercise and... Limiting time on the computer? Yeah. yeah. It cannot be argued that there is a certain amount of exercise, a certain dietary requirement, a lack of drugs are all really good for kids. And as we're all aware, listeners, there are some parents out there who do none of those things. The kids are left to, to defend for themselves. The government ethically can't involve themselves directly with the kids. So the next ethical option is forcing parents to do specific things. And we do, we have that. We have children's courts and child abuse stuff, but it's a far cry from child abuse to making parents take their kids to exercise. <laughs> and it's still, that's an ethical kind of problem. It's a bit of a muddy puddle, isn't it? If the government starts coming in and saying, oh, you need this in order to raise your child properly, who are they to say that? So I'm interested in your opinion as a mother. Where my brain actually went with it is the childcare industry, because that's your aunt and uncle own childcare centres. And the legislation and the, what do you call it, the checks and all the inspections and everything that they have to go through in terms of what they feed the kids, how much exercise the kids get, the education the kids get, all of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And where I went with it is it seems like because the government can't impose those restrictions on parents themselves, they instead impose them on schools and childcare centres. 
to try to make sure they're doing as much as possible without actually doing anything with regards to the parents. Mm. I'm glad we got onto this topic because I have a lot of, of opinions about it. Listeners, for a very long time, I worked as a children's educator. So I use my entertainment training to teach kids from six months to five years about all sorts of very useful things like colors and numbers and how to dance. And it gave me a lot of opinions about the childcare industry as a whole. And they're not all bad opinions. I'd like to say that outright. I have a lot of respect for people who go into childcare. I really do. And I understand that the government imposes a lot of these things because if a childcare opens, childcare facility opens, they're claiming to be professionals. <laughs> they claim to know what they're doing, which means they really should know what they're doing. And the hoops they have to jump through are strenuous. They are not easy. That being said, I've seen no small number of child cares that do exactly the bare minimum or less that pass their tests on one day, having presented the entire center as, as well as could possibly be. And then as soon as the test is done, dial it all back because the owners want to make a profit. Because childcare, the childcare industry is a commercial endeavor. You take money for looking after children, which means that in order to make money, what you've got to do is dial back on the quality of the food. You've got to dial back on how many people you have in the center. You've got to dial back on the quality of the play equipment. All of those things, if you want to make money and not want to look after kids. I have a lot of opinions about this. <laughs> and so I, I understand why the government makes them jump through so many hoops. And it's because a lot of people just cannot be trusted with that. Because the sniff of money means that they just remove a whole bunch of things that kids should have. Mainly people. The, the ratios of childcare educators to children are way off way off what they should be practically everywhere and one of those re one of the reasons for that is because it's hard and the pay is not good and people don't want to do it no one wants to deal with 30 squalling children at a time no one does <laughs> but because the pay is bad and because people want to make money they will deliberately make the ratios really high one one educator to 10 kids 12 kids and when those kids are under five that's a very high ratio <laughs> At the age of three, one child will, ne will need almost constant supervision. <laughs> and if childcare centers can go through all of those hoops and still be bad at it, and many of them are, parents don't have to go through any hoops, really. Or even if they do, they're the absolute bare minimum hoops. One of those hoops is labeled, don't hit your child. <laughs> Should we be doing more? As people, governments are the representatives of their populations. Their decisions, we think of them as a separate entity, but they're not, not really, they're us. Yeah, but that's the problem, yeah. isn't it? Because they're not, like a, people who go into politics now tend to go into politics not to necessarily represent the people, they go into it for themselves. As we're seeing all over the Western world and even Pakistan and places like that. But let's have a look at, because where, where I, I wanted to go with it or where my brain was going with this was, okay, so if we look at 
<laughs> the fast food industries and the, the takeout industries and stuff like that, we limit the number of pharmaceutical products that are available over the counter. You have to provide your driver's license and you can only get so many of this and it's all on a central record and it just helps prevent drug abuse. But we know how cigarettes impact health and we know how fast food impacts health. If we're doing it with pharmaceuticals, should we be doing, and I'm not advocating, I'm not saying we should, right? This is, I'm just putting it out there. If we're doing it with pharmaceuticals, should we be doing it with food? Should we be saying you can only have one Big Mac meal from McDonald's, one a week, that's it. You're not having anything else. And you cannot go in and supersize your Coke with all the sugars and everything else in. And Red Bulls, you can have one a month of those, that kind of thing. Can you imagine? <laughs> I know. I know. Vapes are the big problem in teenagers now. And that's just skyrocketed over the last yeah. few years. Not just, yeah, not just teenagers. The number of actors, should be said, are as impressionable as wet clay. They are amongst the most vulnerable demographic to any kind of peer pressure that I've ever met <laughs> for a number of reasons, but that's just the fact of it, right? Actors will do any drug available to them, generally speaking. They will drink like fish, they will smoke like chimneys, and recently they will vape, <laughs> almost, almost all of them. It's ridiculous. And, and they're a very good kind of litmus test for what vulnerable people will be doing <laughs> because they're just so impressionable. They're so impressionable, especially if it looks cool. Actors are all about the image. And I have a lot of problems with, with vaping. I have a lot of problems with it. You read the studies, they're carcinogenic as anything. It's ridiculous. I can't believe they're allowed to sell things, but they taste good and they look moderately cool and your friends are doing them. All the kids are doing them. I talk to all my friends that, who are teachers, not just the actors. They say all the kids are vaping. It's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous for something that is active poison. More, there's several studies that said they're more carcinogenic than cigarettes. At which point you're like, what? What are you doing? Cigarettes are the poster child of bad for you. I think heroin is probably the poster child of bad for you, but you, you get what I mean. So you went off on your nice little tangent about actors being impressionable. I did. You didn't actually I did. <laughs> what I was saying, that was funny. <laughs> I know that's what we do in all the conversations, right? So, but, <laughs> back to the topic. Sorry, yes, I did go. I did go on a tangent. I've got a lot of thoughts about vapes, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's what you were saying about limiting those things. If you require a population to do certain things, we don't require people to do very many things. Really, we require people to vote, and we require people to pay taxes. And that's pretty much it. Well, um, in Australia, in America. Otherwise, there's the just UK. restrictions. Yeah, in America and the UK, there's no requirement to vote. It's it's an optional extra. Right. Australia, no, you have to vote. Just and there's vote. a lot of questions. You have to vote. You have to, and which is which I personally think is good, because our government is supposed to be representative of the population as a whole. And anyway, we, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the amount of oversight that we can inflict upon people to force them to be happy, <laughs> to force them to be healthy, especially when the things that are bad for us are so convenient. So maybe the solution then becomes not that we require people to do certain things, that we stop them from eating certain things or we force them to exercise once a week, for instance. Maybe it's that we've given too much power to people that sell things. Look at Happy Meals. We're talking about fast food. Look at Happy Meals and the concept of them. Here is a meal that you can pay a scientist somewhere in America to say is healthy for children. And then we're going to give a little, we're going to put a little toy in there. But there's actually five different toys and they all go together and they match so that your child will say, ah, but I want the whole toy, which means you need a minimum of five meals. <laughs> so you have to keep going back for it because kids are really specific about that kind of thing. I actually remember Maybe it's that, that we've given too much freedom. Yeah, I haven't thought about it from that so perspective. But I remember that dilemma going through the drive through in McDonald's and I'd have the four of you in the back and we'd order all the Happy Meals and the person serving would say, do you, do you want four? Do you obviously want four different toys with that? I'm like, no, put the same toy in each one. Can you imagine the arguments if we had four different toys? No. But it's a really good point that you're making. Have we given too much power to commercial, commerciality, what's the word, commerce, maybe something like that. Is, yeah. is, do, do the regulations, corporations, do the regulations need to go on the businesses as opposed to on the people? And how would we do that? What would that look like? I think if we're talking about ethics, if we're talking about the ethics of a government not being able to interfere with its people, then we should talk about the ethics of selling things. Is it ethical to sell a child a vape? Is it ethical to sell someone a vape if you know they're going to give it to a child? Because we do, we restrict alcohol, but we don't restrict a person's alcohol, like an individual's alcohol. We restrict the businesses. We implement taxes. We implement import licenses, things like that. And talking about that, restricting things, there's a big kerfuffle in Australia at the moment because in the Northern Territory, they've, the government there have been restricting alcohol to certain Indigenous communities because they've got a massive problem with alcoholism and then the resulting violence and all that mm. kind of thing. So then there's this big debate about it's not fair on everybody. If somebody just wants one or two drinks, who are you to say they can't have any at all? And should you be doing that because it's free will? But then the other thing that came up for me as you were talking and you were saying the only things we have to do is vote and pay taxes. But actually, in actual fact, if you look at America and the UK, the only thing you absolutely have to do is pay taxes. The voting is an optional extra. So have they got that one around the Fifth Amendment or whatever it is? I don't know which amendment it is. Personal freedom. Yeah, you've got to pay your taxes and you've got to obey all these laws. OK, if you obey all these laws, why aren't there laws? Because if you think about it from one viewpoint, having to wear a seatbelt when you're in your car is a restriction of personal freedom. There are people, I, I remember your granddad having an absolute meltdown because he didn't want to wear his seatbelt. And for a good 
10, 15 years after that law was introduced, he used the fact that he was a taxi driver to not wear his seatbelt, even when he was in a passenger in my car, because taxi drivers then were exempt because they had to get in and out of the car all the time. Undo your seatbelt and then fasten it again takes, what, a second? I think that's a really good example of, I hadn't really thought of that, but that's a requirement government inflicts, to use a specific word, on a population in order to keep them safe. And I have no problem with seatbelts. No problem with them at all. They're really good. They can be occasionally annoying, but everything can occasionally be annoying and they keep you very safe. And I've seen what happens if you don't wear a seatbelt. We all have. People still complain about that. Sure. But since implementing them, fatal crashes have gone down so much. (laughs) Especially because of the speed at which a car travels is increased exponentially since then that's a really good example of of how a government can implement something that makes people healthier but it's it's a restriction again not a requirement it's less that you're encouraged to wear them and more that you're punished if you don't wear them which is the only way that a government can implement these things and how are you supposed to punish people for not exercising (laughs) or for not eating enough vegetables I think about kids and all the things that they should do in order to be healthy. They, or they all need a certain amount of exercise. They all need a certain amount of time outside. If you give a child a small woodland area and an hour, they will make themselves a fort and start a war with the local wildlife. These things are universal. <laughs> kids automatically have a lot of these instincts in them to do a specific kind of amount of exercise and and eat certain things and get into certain amounts of trouble. But the requirements that we have are all just about caring about people. If you care about a child and you want them to be healthy, then more than you are annoyed by their amount of complaining or more than you are tired because you have to look after yourself and this other person, then you'll do these things. You'll make sure that the child exercises and has a certain amount of personal freedoms and has a certain diet. So is the problem then that... Yes and no. Because, I just want to stop you before you finish that, because it's not... If I look at people who feed their child sweet stuff or take them to McDonald's and things, it's not about not giving them healthy food. It's about giving the children pleasure. It's about giving them what they want. Mm. And that's the issue. It's You might be fully aware of what that child requires in order to be healthy, but you also want to keep them happy. And if keeping them happy involves buying them a bar of chocolate or taking them to McDonald's, that's what you're going to do. So it's not just about knowing and being aware of. There's a whole other range of things that you want to do as a parent. That's a good insight because someone who doesn't have kids, I I don't think of it like that. (laughs) But all four of you have told me fairly regularly over the years what deprived children you were because I wouldn't feed you chocolates and lollies and you didn't have this birthday cake with super sweet, sickly, drizzly stuff goozing out of the middle. You've all told me that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the birthday cake book 
That was a bad idea to have gotten that. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like we, we started this talking about what a government can ethically do in terms of a person's health, specifically a child's health. Because according to the rights of the child, the government cannot implement restrictions like that. They have to allow freedom. And parents are under an insane amount of pressure because the idea that one or two parents alone are responsible for a child, or you send them off to an institution like a childcare or a school, and they're just not your problem while they're there. We can see the ethical problem, but I think the whole issue with it is, is that these are the only options. Either you're at home and you're looking after the child and that's it, that's you, or you send them to a place that has to jump all through all these hoops. And then there's no other, there's no third option here. You know what I mean? I think that's what the issue is. We're restricted into a world in which, for instance, one of the things that I think about a lot is how ugly streets are. There is a tangent here. If you go outside as a child and you want to play somewhere, you can't go out on the street. It's dangerous. The number of trees that you can climb in, like look around adults, we don't think about this anymore. But if you go on a walk and you want to try to count all the trees you could possibly climb, there's not that many. <laughs> and because all the, the trees that you find in, in any suburban area are trimmed to be convenient, they're not climbable. Kids don't have areas other than playgrounds, which we'll get back to, that they can play in. That's for them to explore and exist in. There's, they t also only have two options. They can be at home, inside, under direct supervision, or they can be in a childcare area under direct supervision and restricted. It might be the most colourful prison cell in existence, but it's still a prison cell, and I think kids know the difference. And when you go to a playground, that's also the same thing. You've got this jungle gym area. It does have slides and bouncy things and, and swings, but it'll get boring if you go to that every day. There's only a certain number of things you can do on a slide. You can go up it, you can go down it, you can climb on the underside of it like a strange monster. But that's it. The number of things you can do with the tree is exponential because it's got all these different things. You can climb all the way up to the top. You can break your leg. That'll be fun. You can take some leaves off and make a hut. You can throw sticks at passers-by. There's any number of things you can do with a tree that you can't do with a slide because a slide is very safe and a tree is not. <laughs> And I've got a lot of opinions about that, but I think that really illustrates the point that kids are as trapped as we are in the fact that they don't have any more options. They've got two options. We've got two options. And that's the ethical dilemma. Should we implement more control is ethically iffy. But at this point, we're being forced into two environments. And it's like the classroom problem. That's why kids are unhealthy. If you give kids sweet things, sure, that's great. But at this point, giving them pleasure, like giving them sweet things or giving them, taking them to a, a jungle gym, like we did when we were kids, buying them nice, bad for you things is the only way they get pleasure. That's what I think. Excuse me, I hadn't even considered that at all. Partly because when you were growing up, we had that uh, property five acres and I'd just let you out the door and off you'd go. You'd come in when you were hungry or not even mm. if you wanted to go to the toilet. But 
It was great. We got into so much trouble. Yeah, you did. (laughs) And what I found really interesting was that five acres just wasn't enough. You had to go and explore next door's property and the one beyond that as well. Yeah. Just got to be done, right? You do. You do. (laughs) You had to go and dig up ants' nests and then you built huts out of all the sticks that you'd gathered and... But even then, I remember thinking, I, I don't know. I've often, I often look at playgrounds packaging in toys and not just toys, packaging for pet stuff, right? And it's aimed at the adult. It's not aimed at the kid. It's aimed to attract the adult and what the adult thinks the child is going to like or the pet is going to like. Which takes us back to that conversation about um, should restrictions be placed on corporations, companies and the products that people are putting out? Because is it Sweden that you're not allowed to advertise anything to children under 14? It's one of those countries to directly market. I can understand that. at, at, At children. And I think that should be the case as well until you are old enough to understand what's happening. You shouldn't be sitting watching Disney or what's the other channel, Nickelodeon, and getting bombarded with all these toy ads or fast food ads or whatever. I can understand that. I'm just thinking about it. I think about that, the lack of neutral space for kids a lot of the time. I've read any number of studies about children's interactions, right? And I think I might have mentioned on an earlier podcast, but there's a very measurable trend that when kids are left to their own devices, their internal interactions, their societies become safer for the individual from each other, not from external threats, but from each other. The more parental or supervisory uh, influence they have on things like bullying, the more unequal their interactions become. And I think about that. And then I think about how they call it hostile infrastructure, like the streets that we drive on every day, like the cul-de-sacs and the, 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 the roads that we have in suburbia aren't f- fit for children. I think about that. And I think about how there's a trend for smaller and smaller gardens and larger TVs. And I think about how there's also a trend for more and more separate families. Grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins all live further and further away from each other. And the family is now a family of, I think, on average, four and a quarter. It's going down. It's going smaller. That's your family. That's all you have. And I think about a growing trend of meaningful relationships being fostered over the Internet rather than in face to face. More and more, the only meaningful interactions you have are people that you see face to face. But there's also a trend of the vast majority of interactions you have are via the internet. So I think about all those things. <laughs> that horrible equation. Because at the bottom of that is a whole world, I think, that is hostile to a small child. And a lot of it is in the name of keeping that child safe, which is a good thing to want. It is a good thing to want. I can understand that. That's something that I think about a lot. That, that's why I'm quiet, because it's just this whole horrible long equation with some incontrovertible maths. <laughs> and it, it makes me a bit sad. 
Honestly. Makes me a bit sad. You tell me all the time of your childhood and the number of times you mentioned the moors near your house is a hundred, a thousand times more than you mentioned the inside of your house. <laughs> but if you take the average child and you ask them where they spend the majority of their time or where they go when they go outside, they won't have that. The average suburban child's time outdoors will be to a park. They might go to an oval. And listeners, if you don't know what an oval is, an oval is the most barren and featureless landscape you could possibly design. And that is where you say children can have fun. It's actually... A, and so I think about all these things. <laughs> the football pitch or a cricket pitch is the oval. Yeah. It's just a field. It's a big field with some poles in it. <laughs> Whereas if you asked me to ask to think about when I was a kid, and if you were to ask me as a child what kind of landscape would be the most fun, I would have told you a woodland area with a stream is the most fun sort of area for a child to play with. Ideally, there would be water in that stream, but we lived in Western Australia, so that's a little bit too much to ask. A little bit too much to ask. <laughs> and yes, the plants wanted to kill us and eat us in WA, but that just made things more fun. And we certainly used that to our advantage. <laughs> so, yeah, it makes me a bit sad. All of that kind of stuff. Because there's no easy fix to that. No, The more built up we become. Yeah, and I think the problem is the more built up we've become, the less safe in a lot of ways it's got to be, the more aware of that lack of safety we've become, the more afraid of hurting our children we've become because we can be held responsible. I used to let you lot go wandering off into John Forest National Park down the road from us, but had something happened to you and you'd been seriously injured, then I could have been prosecuted by the police for neglect, even though you were having the best time ever. And that's your favourite memories going mm. off into John Forest. So... You've got to think of that side of it as well. There's always going to be a, a legal liability and it might not be somebody else that brings it, another person. It could be the insurance company who's got to pay for your medical bills and they go, no, you were ne negligent in letting that child do that without adult supervision. And there's a whole litany of problems that come from that position of trying to keep the children safe. I don't know if you remember one of Jamie's parties. I think it was his 13th birthday party. And we held it on the property at Gidgeganup. And we had this long flying fox. Fabulous. And one of Jamie's friends came down the flying fox and the brake failed and the kid hit the tree. And he was concussed. He was quite all right, apart from the fact that he was concussed. But he's a teenage boy. He's a walking concussion. But his dad was great because I was really mm. worried. Oh, my God, this poor kid. And his dad said, was the blood? And I said, no. And his dad was a doctor, by the way. He was a surgeon. He said, oh, did he lose consciousness? No, nope, he'll be fine. And <laughs> just took Bryn home, get in the car, fine. <laughs> so I was very lucky in that regard. It could have been a completely yeah. different outcome because had had the kid broke his nose even and the insurance company got involved 
That would have been negligence, criminal negligence on my part. So you got this big rock. You got this big hard place. (laughs) (laughs) And they're getting closer together. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) Because I think personally, and I invite everyone who listens to this to think about this. Do you think that a happy child is a child who has never been injured? Because I don't. I never personally, I never broke my leg or my arm or my collarbone or anything as a child, which is fine because I didn't experience the excruciating amount of pain that comes with that. But it can't be argued that those experiences are entirely bad for you. Kids who break their legs know the consequences of climbing trees. (laughs) A certain amount of... Take Bryn on the flying fox. The brake almost certainly failed because he tried to go as fast as was humanly possible. <laughs> and there was two he got his friends to push him. Yeah. There was two boys pulling him. That yeah. was the problem. They had ropes. Yeah. He wanted to go as fast as possible and he learned the consequences of that. <laughs> I don't think he would have regretted that. He may have regretted that. <laughs> In that he wouldn't do it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you can only say that when you've experienced it the first time. A happy child is an alive child. But I don't think an uninjured child is a happy child, personally. So I think the solution to that, from my perspective, is to teach kids first aid. It's not to wrap them in bubble wrap and keep them inside all the time. Injury is bad, sure. But no injury is worse, I think. And this isn't a new argument. The Greek philosophers used to talk about that. (laughs) They used to have a big argument about whether a person who had never received any injury at all would be happier than a person who had cut themselves every single day for their entire life. I invite everyone to think about that, especially when it comes to things like like you were saying, like neglect. But I think it extends to things like suing people because we're unhappy (laughs) when we're mildly inconvenienced. A little bit of pain is good for us. A little bit of pain is good for kids. They don't regret it. I've, I had, what, four major concussions before the age of 15? And we're talking like major stuff here. <laughs> sure, my IQ's gone down a little bit. I don't regret any of it. <laughs> it and, but it's interesting as you're saying that those injuries are the ones you all remember and laugh about. Keely with a knee. Keely put Mm. her knee through the window. She was trampolining on a bed, bounced off the bed and stuck her knee through the window. (laughs) It was like our last day in that house too. I think she was packing up her bed like when we were moving out. And she was like, I must bounce on it one last time. And I heard this terrific crash. Remember the time Jamie was climbing the tree and he fell out and landed in the parrot bush? Parrot bush, people, is like a cross <laughs> between a holly and an acacia tree. It is, it's got spikes on it that it's, are like that long. It is vicious yeah. as all hell. Only grows in Western Australia. It's the angriest plant can be. It's, you can't get an angrier plant on the face of the world. <laughs> he came out, cut to ribbons. <sighs> His clothes were in shreds. Yeah, he wasn't physically injured apart from the injuries the parrot bush inflicted on him. 
are the ones you I don't envy him. Back. That would have been so painful. That would have been, yeah. Yeah. He didn't get his eyes. He, he didn't really oh. get his face a little bit. But his arms and his legs were cut to ribbons. But in, in retrospect, how easy would that have would it have been for him to lose one of his eyes falling into a bunch of parrot bush? We know how spiky they are. Would have been really easy to do some irreparable damage. Um, but that makes it all the more. You know, would we have a different perspective? It, but that that near miss makes it more memorable and makes it makes us laugh at those things a bit more. Yeah. In a way, maybe it's just me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I think we should ask Jamie about that. I think his opinion is, is fairly important here. But <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a good conversation to have to contrast what we were saying about forcing people to do things that are good for them. Exercise is good for you. Food is good for you. Foods. Falling out of trees into parrot bush is a mixed basket <laughs> at best. <laughs> That's the thing. So if we want kids to experience things that are bad, why should we stop them from not exercising? Why should we stop them from eating poorly? Why do we get to decide what bad things they should experience and what good things they should experience? What's the difference there, ethically? That's a good point. I hadn't considered that. I think that's yeah. a good time to wind up. I think so too, before we go any more in circles. <laughs> We're going in circles like that, loops. Yeah, it's like a spiral. <laughs> <laughs> we're spiraling. You and me, we're spiraling. <laughs> spiral. We spiral into weird, and then we go off. Yeah. On tangent. Okay. Yeah, we do. Thank you so much. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, listener, for having this inflicted upon you. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends thanks so much for listening and i hope you're leaving with some thought-provoking information that can make a difference in your life see you next time <laughs>